viewed one way. We live at a very hopeful moment. Thanks to, in large part, the work of university scientists and engineers, we now live on a planet where the cheapest way to produce power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. That is to say, we could run our earth on energy from heaven instead of hell, and we could do it fast. The fast is the hard part here. The only difference between all the examples of the long victories of social justice activism that Caroline rightly describes and the situation that we're in now is that this one is a time-limited problem. If we don't solve it fast, then we don't solve it. No one's got a plan for how you refreeze the Arctic once you've melted it. And so we have to move very quickly. Our systems are not designed to move quickly. It's the easiest thing in the world to slow down and delay change, which is all that the fossil fuel industry at this point is really trying to do. And that means that it's time for maximum effort from all of us. A story to tell is the planet is outside its comfort zone, so we need to be outside ours. So, of course, I've been working on climate issues for a very long time. I wrote the first book about climate change way back in 1989. We then called it the greenhouse effect, it's how old I am. At a certain point, maybe 20 years ago, it became clear to me that I would need to do more than write books, that the clear warning that scientists were providing was not proving to be enough to change the outcome here. And that's because the enormous power of the fossil fuel industry was resisting it at every turn. They were engaged in a campaign of delay and denial and disinformation. So we started forming movements to try and build some power of our own, not with money, but with people. And with seven students here at Middlebury, where I teach, we launched a thing called 350.org that became the first big global grassroots climate campaign. We've organized, we think, about 20,000 demonstrations in every country except North Korea. We had a few big projects to begin with. One was helping spearhead the fight against the Keystone pipeline, which became the sort of great environmental battle of the last decade in a lot of ways. And the next after that was to start this divestment campaign. The idea really was hatched by my friend Naomi Klein and I. We'd both been reading the latest science, which showed that the fossil fuel industry had in its reserves and that it planned to dig up and burn roughly five times as much carbon as any scientist thought we could safely absorb. In other words, these were rogue companies. Their business plan spelled complete disaster for the planet. Both of us had been college students in the 1980s. And so Naomi and I thought back to the last time there'd been a kind of big, obvious class of really rogue industries, which were the ones supporting the South Africa apartheid government in that country. And we thought about the effectiveness of the divestment campaign in helping draw attention to and eventually drive those companies out of that line of work. So we decided to see what we could do. One of the first things we did was ask Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of South Africa, who had won the Nobel Prize for his work on that campaign, if it was okay to borrow the idea. And he said, please, you know, if apartheid was the human rights question of the last generation, then climate change is the human rights question for this one. So I wrote a long article for Rolling Stone that went very viral. And that became the foundation for launching a, a kind of tour of first this country, 
then Australia, New Zealand, and then Europe. And we'd do big programs you know, for many thousands of people at a time to explain to them the logic of this campaign and then to get them enlisted in it. The one in the U.S. in the fall of 2012, we visited 29 cities in 30 days or something like that. And by the time we were done, there were several hundred divestment campaigns underway on college campuses, and it soon spread to foundations, to pension funds, on and on. It's been extraordinarily successful by many measures. I think the biggest anti-corporate campaign of its kind in history, we're at about $40 trillion now in endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole from coal, oil, gas. And that's had both measurable effects on the kind of social standing, as it were, of these companies. We said we wanted to take away their social license, and I think that helped a good deal. And But also on their access to capital, especially in the coal industry, as fewer and fewer funds are willing to participate in that work. There has been opposition, of course, every step of the way because it represented, in the eyes of the industry, a profound threat. And so, you know, at every turn. For a while, they announced that an opposition research firm in Washington had been hired to dig into everything about my past and then to also follow me around wherever I went with people with cameras. Every time I stepped outside the door, it was a weird year or two. But, you know, what can I tell you? I live a pretty boring life. And eventually they, you know, went on in search of more fruitful harvest. But, you know, at every turn, there's been a big fight. But in fact, that's been good. This was a way to take the climate fight everywhere. Most people don't live proximate to a oil well pipeline coal mine, but everyone's adjacent to a pot of money, a church fund, a college endowment, pension fund. And that meant that the climate fight could be carried out in 10,000 places at once. And so it was. It's absurd to let people who are actively wrecking the planet be a, an effective part of the university community, whether it's through investing in them or in many universities, letting them come in and build, you know, centers and things, institutes designed to forward their own interests. By this point, is such a toxic industry with mm. such an insane impact. The temperature in 2023 was higher than it's been in at least 125,000 years on this planet, almost entirely to the efforts of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, if we're serious about civilization, which theoretically universities are the flower of, then we better get our act together fast. Cornell has some of the greatest climate scientists in the world. The fact that we understand what methane is doing, and methane is 35 or 40% of the heating gases in the atmosphere, is down very largely to a man named Bob Howarth, who's a professor at Cornell. And what a dishonor to his research and work that it doesn't occur to the university administrators to at least get rid of the stock in the very companies that have spent the last 20 years trying to discredit him, trying to prevent his work from being understood and appreciated, on and on. Outright climate denial is almost impossible unless you're Donald Trump or somebody. You know, there have been too many fires and too many floods and too much heat. But the new form of effective denial is delay. Science tells us now that we have to move very fast to have any chance of dealing with this. 
And instead, the fossil fuel industry is doing everything they can to preserve their business model a few more decades, even at the cost of breaking the planet, which clearly will be the cost. So this is just another one of these cases where the facts make clear what we need to do. And as Al Gore said a long time ago, those facts can be inconvenient. In this case, inconvenient for the industry in question. And also, you know, inconvenient for the investment manager at the university who's going to have to spend a few weeks rebuilding the portfolio. But on the list of things that we have to do to cope with climate change, you know, this falls on the easy end of the spectrum and on the highly effective end of the spectrum. And this should be over and done and we should be on to the next part. We shouldn't still have to be playing this particular game. But thank heaven, Caroline and so many others are still willing to be pushing hard here. There are places that and universities that actually have a sort of deeply defined moral mission, often religious schools, and they were often easier to move than others. There were places that only responded when civil disobedience came into play. And I think those are places that are exquisitely worried about their image and what it looks like. The best harvest of this divestment campaign were the students on universities who worked on it, who got trained up and psyched up and became incredible. When they got out of school, they wanted to keep working on climate change. And so veterans of the divestment campaign formed this thing called the Sunrise Movement. And it was the Sunrise Movement that brought us the Green New Deal. And it was the Green New Deal in kind of boiled down form that eventually became the Inflation Reduction Act, the first significant work that Congress ever did. You know, the woman who was the ED, the executive director of the Sunrise Movement for its first eight years or something, was a woman named Varshini Prakash, one of the great activists in the world who I first knew when she was, I don't know, 17 and running the divestment campaign at UMass Amherst, going to jail, winning an early victory there. And, you know, she and many of others of that cohort went on to really do us proud in their work. Because the climate crisis is so urgent, I felt like I had to kind of change my humanistic approach, right, is to think not delay anymore. But how do you then rush us when that goes against our very principles as humanists? And I think there's something true across the whole university about this, you know, that scholarship is supposed to be slow and rigorous and thoughtful. And, and it should, you know, I don't think that that's wrong. But how do we then urge ourselves into quick action? So part of my work has been to kind of think about what's practical action we can take that will have an effect that could actually move us in a, in a given direction without selling our soul as scholars or as humanists or as artists. And it seems to me there's a tremendous amount that can be done. But 350.org is one of my models through the whole book, which is to say, how do you get a lot of people talking together? 